Hey, my name is Janelle Thiessen, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to another episode of The Human Being Project by The Change Evolutionist. In this podcast, I join my dad, Ron Thiessen, to explore the difference between being and doing. In a world of constant distractions, sky-high expectations, and the relentless pursuit of more, we examine what would happen if we made space for more being and less doing. In this episode, we want to talk about why you are called the change evolutionist and what it means for people, how it relates to their lives. Can they be their own change evolutionist? So let's dive in a little bit. You can tell us what it means for you. Well, the change evolutionist uh, term actually came from one of my clients uh, who said to me, you know, you're, you're like a change evolutionist. And uh, <laughs> I had never heard the term before. It's not even in the dictionary. And I thought that is such a great description of exactly what I do and the way I think about change. So um, I, I took that and I adopted it and said, I, that's exactly what I'm going to call myself, the change evolutionist, because uh, that's exactly what I do. So the, the idea is that most people, when they think about making a change, they think about change as being either a right-hand turn or a left-hand turn or an about turn. And they think that change then means that you need to uh, you need to to do something drastic to make the change and and to and to enforce the change. Mm. And as human beings, it, it never works that way. Change is the most difficult thing that we do as human beings. And sometimes the thing that we avoid at all costs. And th the thing is that whenever you're going to experience change, you will experience resistance. And resistance comes in many forms and in many strengths. Some changes, you may not have very much resistance. For other changes, you're going to have maximum resistance. And in terms of resistance, I have found that if the change is being imposed on you from the outside, that's when your, your resistance will be at its maximum. Because you might be a, a person who's pretty stubborn, or you might not see the value of what the outside is telling you needs to change. Or sure, you, it's going to be a situation where you will have the most resistance to the change. If the change comes from your head where you have rationalized, okay, here's where I am, here's where I want to go, and these are some changes that I'm going to need to make, and it makes sense. Or let's say you're, you're trying to take care of your health and you, know, you understand that you're experiencing some challenges with your health, and so you need to maybe change your eating or change your exercise or take some kind of medication or something like that. That is a rational way of thinking about, I need to make this change. And even when it's in your own head, you're still going to have resistance to the change. Where I've found is the least resistance to change is when it comes from the heart. So, uh, you know, in this, in these podcasts, we're talking about the difference between human being and human doing. And human being for me is what emanates from who you are, from your heart space rather than your head space. So if I understand from my heart space that I really need to make some changes, let's say I'm uh, observant that in my interactions with people, they always seem to misunderstand me, or I, I can't really seem to make connections with people. It's very difficult for me to, to come to a place where uh, th this person understands what I'm trying to say and understands what, what I'm trying to do. And I keep running into those obstacles. My heart may be telling me, 
you really have to make some changes in order to create the kind of environment where people want to talk to you or want to connect with you. That, that would be a change that would be coming from my heart space. Or if I feel like I need to be more uh, present in my intimate relationships in my life, I'm distant or I'm not emotionally connected or whatever. Those, those thoughts are coming from my heart space. And when that happens, your resistance is at its lowest, but it still might be significant. So when you're trying to make a change that is a right-hand turn or an about turn or a left-hand turn, uh, what happens with most people is that they will try to make the turn and they will do it, it when they're in a moment of motivation. So that could be, they could be at a seminar, they could be a, a workshop, or they could have just had a, a very influential conversation with somebody who they respect and admire and say, I want to make this change and I'm going to do it as of right now. And what happens then is that as time goes by, it just ticks back to business as usual. So I see it like kind of like on a clock face, you know, if you're, you're at the, at the 12 marker and you make a change that's taking you to the three. Um, as time passes, you're just going to tick back to the 12 and you could find yourself a year from the time you decided to make this significant change. You're kind of right back where you started. And as I was thinking about that, because I've done a lot of studying on, on how people handle change and, and what happens when people are faced with change. Um, I thought, what if you could reverse the process instead of trying to make the right hand or about turn, and then everything ticks back to business as usual. What if you started out ticking over with change from 12, working your way to three, just by one second ticks on that clock of change? And I have found that working with people like that makes it far more likely that they're going to adopt a change and then stick with it. Because by the time you tick over from 12 to three, You've already implemented minor and small changes in your life. So now you, you find out that you're actually at this big change that you've always wanted to do, but it wasn't so painful to get there. And because it wasn't so painful to get there, you're far more likely to implement the change because you've been doing increments of it over time for quite a while. That has really led me to this whole concept of experiments when you're facing change. Uh, what about doing experiments to find out where is your resistance? Because uh, that's what experiments will do. They'll show you where your areas of resistance are and what you can do about them, if anything. And sometimes people are just, they're, they're not at a place where they're even ready for change. And so trying to force it, it's counterproductive because, okay, they make a, a change under duress or under force, and then they just go back to what they were doing before. Well, and frequently, don't you find that people, they think they need a certain change, but it's actually not the change they need. And that can sometimes create that resistance as well, because they're not actually aligned. Like when you talk about change from the heart instead of the head, that's, um, I'm still trying to wrap my brain around that one, because are you talking about the motivation for the change comes from the heart instead of the head? For example, if I said, I want to become more fit, so I'm going to get up and I'm going to run every morning. I'm going to run a mile, two miles, three miles every morning. That's the change I'm making. But that's a change made from the head because I want to be more fit. A practical way to do that would be to run. 
if it was a change from the heart, would it look more like I want to be more fit because I want to feel more present in my life or more able to function? So I'm going to do something in the morning that promotes that, whether it's like a walk in nature or whether I do some yoga or lift some weights. I'm, I'm going to sit with it and let it resonate what what's best for me on each certain day. I don't know. I'm trying to figure out what the difference is between change from the heart and change from the head. So you're partially right. And you hit the nail on the head with what you said. Um, the The heart motivation is I can be convinced in my head rational that I need to make a change. But I, it, from my heart, I could be fighting it. Like, let's say, for instance, you know, one of the most common things that we look at when we're talking about making a change that you need to make is people on uh, medication or with medical problems where they need to do certain things. So n- not necessarily just medication, but let's say exercise. You know, your doctor tells you, okay, you have to recover from this injury or whatever. And Here's the things you need to do. And there's, there, there are exercises that you need to do. So you can, you can be convinced in your head that you get that outside pressure. This is what you should do. And you look at it and you say rationally, okay, that's, that's right. I should do that. I should be stretching. I should be walking. I should be exercising in some way. It, that makes sense. I should do that. But if, the, if that's as deep as it goes, then the chances that you're going to stick with your regimen are not that great. Because even though you're convinced in your head, uh, there is, there, there's something else happening at the heart level. And the heart level might be saying things like, if I have to go into a structured program of exercise, that means that I'm not going to be able to, I, I think I'm going to be overtired. I think I'm going to be, I'm not going to have the energy to do the things that I need to do. That's your heart talking to you and telling you what it really thinks about what your head is telling you to do. Now, if you discipline yourself from what you understand in your head to, let's say, undergo a, an intensive exercise program, and all of a sudden you find out how much better you feel, you, your heart is going to get in agreement with your head on that particular issue and say, this really is much better for you. It's, a, it's like just a few weeks ago, uh, we started on a whole, whole food plant-based diet. We said, let's try it for a couple of weeks. We're just going to experiment, see what happens. And mm-hmm. of course, my head is telling me, I mean, I, I've been exposed to some information. I think this is a really good thing to do. But my heart is saying to me things like, you know, when I get together with friends or when I go out to the restaurant or when I, you know, when we get together with family, like this is, this is going to be a real hassle. I don't think I'm going to hold on to this. Right. Mm. And, but now as I've been experiencing the effects of it, my heart is going, I think, if you if you think that time with family and friends, going to a restaurant and having those kinds of experiences is important, what you're doing right now is going to prolong the amount of time you're going to be able to do that. And if you do what you were doing before, that's going to shorten your life. So what do you want? Do you want a longer life to have more of those experiences where you just have to make different choices at the restaurant, or you just have to make different choices about what you put in your body? Do you want it? Do you, would you like to have your life extended making those kinds of choices? Or do you want to indulge yourself as you always have in your eating and just say, however short my life is, that's how short it's going to be. This is a completely different level of, of engagement now with the change. When presented with a choice about change, whether it's good for you or it's bad for you, it's something you should do or it's something you want to do. 
I'm reminded of a quote by the late and great Abraham Lincoln, where he said, discipline is choosing between what you want now and what you want most. And oftentimes, that is the dilemma with change. Can you overlook instant gratification for long-term gain? What do you want now? What do you want most? And are they the same? I like the way you said, the brain says you should, and the heart says I want. Basically, that's what you said. And so it's like the, the heart says, there's a bigger picture and I want I want all of these things for my own wellness, my own happiness, my own joy, my own fulfillment. But the brain is the should one. You should. I mean, if you were yeah. going to be healthy, you would do this and you should do this and you should do that. And so that's not like a lot of judgment from the brain because should yes. to me is instantly judgment. You know, you see the, f- the finger shaking. You should. You know, you really yeah, should. Right. right. So no wonder there's then- resistance there. Exactly, because guilt comes into play then, right? Mm-hmm. And if I'm an independent person and, and I'm being guilted to make change, there's going to be a, a big stubborn push in me. And I'm certainly that kind of person. Don't tell me what I need to do. Don't tell me mm-hmm. what I should be doing because chances are it's like kids, you know, tell them what they should be doing and they're probably going to do the opposite, right? <laughs> because they're, they're, they're expressing their independence. It's yeah. normal. It's healthy. That's human beings. Mm-hmm. So I was just talking to somebody the other day about, uh, uh, they were talking about drinking and, uh, and you know, this, this should, I, I should, I shouldn't drink as much as I do. I should stop. So I just said, well, what if you, what if you just forget about all the shoulds? What if you just said, you know, I'm a person who drinks. I really enjoy drinking and I don't really intend to quit. And so I'm just going to drink. What if you said that? Because I see you that in your life, you're living full of guilt that you drink and yet you can't stop yourself. And that, that just strengthens that addiction. It really does. So you, you can't break it. Yeah. So what if, what if you just said, Hey, I'm a person who drinks and I'll drink when I feel like it. And I drink for lots of different reasons. Most of them are, are social or connection kinds of reasons and then do that. Why are you mm-hmm. fighting it so hard? And, um, you know, j- different people are different. Somebody said to me one time, well, if you don't drink, you can't be in social settings with people in restaurants or whatever, because they're going to look at you like you're weird. I have <laughs> never had that problem ever. You know, people say, would you look like a glass of wine? No, thank you. Uh, and you. Even living here in Quebec, you know, people go, okay, you know, nobody's looking at me like, you don't drink? What, what's the problem? And in fact, I think this person that said that to me said, People will think that you're an alcoholic and you're off of off of booze. I've never <laughs> had anyone say that to me. Oh, what, what are you? Uh, you're trying to you're trying not to fall off the wagon, or no? <laughs> so it's it's these things that people build up in their minds about what is going to what are going to be the consequences of making this choice or this decision, right? And you know what you said about the brain. It's the should 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 always and and when I was talking about you know stuff coming at you externally. For sure, there are people who will put guilt on you about things you're not, you're doing or not doing. Yes. You know, and and wow, that kind of the resistance then for many of us is at the maximum. For some of mm-hmm. us, maybe not, but for most of us, I think that resistance is at the maximum. Somebody outside telling me what I should be doing? No. Mm-hmm. Even when it comes to change, um, there's a lot of shame for, I, I think a lot of change is motivated by societal shame. You know, for example, 
I don't have the right career that shows that I, you know, that I'm successful. I don't have, maybe I don't have the right house. I don't, I don't drive the right car. I don't have the right number of kids. I'm not married yet. I don't have this or that, the, the standards that spell success. So then there's shame that you don't have those things. And then the brain launches into, I should. But the heart could actually do the opposite and say, why? Why mm. should you? Right. So sometimes I, I, you know, there's, the, there is resistance to change and there's a big, I mean, change is a, is a bad word to a lot of people, but there's so much change that happens naturally. We get up every morning, our bodies shed skin cells and like we're constantly mm. regenerating. Change is just part of the DNA of this whole planet and our, and our physical bodies. So the change that we force upon our lives, one wonders if it's always necessary or if we've just, if we've become a little bit addicted to do better, evolve, be, you know, have more, this process of constantly striving requires so much change and we're on change overload. So I wonder, would you think as a, as the change evolutionist, uh, would you think that the heart could actually even say, whoa, let's chill out on change a little. You already, you're already on change overload. How about if you just sit still and just be and just, just let some stuff just happen and accept and love and appreciate? Is there space for that? Do you think or? It's amazing how this all ties together because when we're talking about human being as opposed to human doing. And when we've talked about uh, spirituality and purpose and, uh, and and tapping into spiritual energy and, and then into this whole mix, the problem that comes in and creates all of the problems is the ego. So mm-hmm. when the ego is pushing you to, to do certain things or to appear a certain way, uh, to have a certain kind of car or to live in a certain kind of place or to have a certain kind of job. That's all about the ego trying to position you in, in whatever you would consider your realm of success or, or, uh, your realm of, of being in such a way that people will respect you. And, and so when you ask about the, the, the heart spaces, is there, is there ever a chance for that, for the heart to say, it's enough, just be who you are? You will be overwhelmed by everything around you if you're trapped in your ego. But if you can, you know, through prayer, mindfulness, and meditation, if you can tap into that spiritual realm that shows you the abundance of who you are as a human being, then all of those uh, trappings become so much less important. And for sure, the heart then is saying, this is not something you need to change. This is not something that needs to be different. The pressure for this is coming from an external place or it's coming from your ego that says that you need to be or do a certain thing. No, just who you are as you show up is enough. And for sure, the people that feel like that are actually the people who make the most significant changes because their whole being is open to hear, uh, you know, you could be more effective interacting with this person if you would do this instead of that. So they end up in this growth track. They've made the time and space to be in tune, to to right. have the room right. to listen to whatever is going on inside, right? Exactly. And when you have connection with the spiritual realm, 
spiritual energy is always expanding. So when we are, when we're connected there, we as a person, we will expand as well. We'll see things, how we could be more engaged in our being as a human rather than just our doing, right? Mm -hmm. The understanding of what it means to be a human being expands when you look at the spirit realm and you understand that the spirit realm is constantly being. And in being, there is creation, but it's not about doing, it's about being. It's about existing. At this point in the conversation, I asked Ron, what is a change evolutionist? And why is he the change evolutionist? He explains that part of his calling is to empower people not to fear change, because change is an inevitable part of our human existence, and it's pointless to resist. And yet, resistance is our first impulse. He breaks down his method of navigating change, and it makes anything you're dealing with, anything that seems scary right now, less menacing, less daunting. It's all about reducing the pressure to change right now by incorporating little experiments and assessing how you're feeling along the way. The method that I use that I have found so effective in my own life and then in the lives of people that I've shared it with is this concept of you're facing a change that you feel like maybe you should do, or you're facing a change that your heart is telling you it's, it's necessary for you to make this change. And instead of giving yourself this ultimatum, I need to make this change, you design little experiments to test what will the change mean and how do I feel making that change? So it, I don't think it really matters what the change is. I think you can design an experiment to test your reaction to making that change. So if, it, if it's something to do with, uh, with your body or what you do or with your mind, or how you think or, or what you expose it to or, you know, any kind of change that if it's exercise, same thing. You can, you can design a little experiment where you give it a limited p period of time where you just play with the change, see what happens. I say often when I'm talking about experiments that they're only valuable if you collect the data. So if you're going into an experiment, when you design the experiment, you have to analyze, how are you feeling about that experiment? What, what thoughts are coming up? What kind of reactions are coming out of you as you design that experiment? What are you feeling as you, as you go to do the experiment? What are you feeling when you're doing the experiment? What are you feeling afterwards? You, know, you have to analyze all of that to understand the impact that that experiment had on you. And many times, you know, change is a lot like fear in that way. You know, if you fear something and you go and confront it, you often find that the fear of the fear is greater than the fear itself. And, mm -hmm. and many times with change, it's like that. What you're going to have to do to make the change, uh, it's actually far less to actually engage the change than what you thought. Oftentimes that happens. Mm -hmm. And if it doesn't happen, oftentimes just taking the first step by doing an experiment, you're taking the first step towards change. You realize this wasn't near as, as uh, difficult as I thought it was going to be, or I see a benefit here that I, I never thought of, of happening because I just avoided the change. So when did you first fall in love with this concept of embracing and navigating change? Well, I, I guess for me, it was that the major change that I went through 
when I went through a divorce and that changed everything about the way that I saw life before that and the way I saw life in the middle of that and the way I began to see life in the aftermath of that. And it was really necessary for me to make some dramatic changes in that area because uh, the way I had been taught and raised and thought about divorce meant that if I was getting divorced, that life basically as I knew it was over. Mm. And to be in the center of that now and thinking, this is interesting because um, I, I don't feel like life is over. I feel like it's beginning. And I'm not sure why I feel like that, but I feel optimistic about the future. And I started to think about why, why am I feeling optimistic when everything is crumbling around me? But I realized then that what I had built around me to, to uh, ensure that I was feeling successful, if I put that in quotations, that it was all temporary. And there was nothing guaranteed and nothing sure about that. The only thing sure that remained when I was in the center of it was that I was still the same person, changing, but, but still I was the same person. And my relationship with God was the same. Those are the only two things that, that remained constant, which was very interesting to me because, uh, you know, the things that I thought in my life before that I would never be able to endure, I was just living them. And I didn't even feel like I was enduring. I was, I was living and understanding. I got so much enlightenment uh, as I was in, in, the, in the center of going through that. And that enlightenment took me into the aftermath, but as, as really a, quite a different person in terms of the way I looked at life, um, my expectations of what was owed to me in my life, and uh, my understanding of how I could broaden the horizons of who I am as a person, how I could maximize that for my personal growth. And I, I really had a passion for personal growth as I came out of that experience. I thought, I'm going to maximize this opportunity to learn about myself and to figure out how much of what I had in my life before were my sort of intuitive structures that I had built, uh, which were now all dismantled and some of them absolutely destroyed. And how much of what I was looking at now, how was I going to react to and respond to my life from this point on? So what started the process then of change evolution for others, helping other people navigate this type of life journey, these unexpected detours that so often we fear if we imagine worry and think, oh my gosh, not that. As long as that doesn't happen, I'll be okay. But if that happens, it's over, which you, you basically described divorce as from your perspective. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then discovered, oh, there's actually a whole nother, there's a whole nother life after this that I never imagined. So, so many right. people are in that place where they're just thinking, this is it. I'm at the end of the road. There is nothing left for me here. I'm, you know, my worst fears are realized. I've got an illness or my marriage is falling apart, or my child is sick, or I've been rejected, or my career path changed, or whatever, right? These horrible things that we honestly think it's the end. That's it. How do you help people go from that place of real despair to hope again? 
So I started with my own experience and understanding that what I ended up with in terms of my life was actually far richer than anything I'd lived before because before I was so limited by my ego. And I had to structure my life so that all of these things fit within my ego concept of what life was supposed to look like. And when that was kind of stripped away, I realized that there were structures there and there were opportunities and uh, emotions that I really had never tapped into. And they were not scary. They were actually very much richer than the limitations that I had lived before. So I think in my work with people, I've just realized that so many times we are so terrified of change, but that change may be the most beneficial thing that ever happened to us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, anecdotally, for sure, I've talked to many people who had uh, things in their lives, like very serious things, like like a child who has been injured or sick and how they have seen that that was that was such a turning point for them it was it really opened their eyes to a life that they didn't know could exist and sometimes that that kind of pressure or tragedy even is the only way that we get a glimpse into this other realm mm-hmm. and for me you know going through uh, divorce and and the family split and all of that stuff was one of those very traumatic things and one of those things that I thought this will never happen to me you know uh, I wouldn't be able to survive that but I did and what has come out of it is just much richer than what I had before many times this the terrifying things that people are facing don't look so terrifying to you because you're not right there right yeah. and, and so you can say to them, this is not as terrifying as you think it is, you mm-hmm. know? And if you could see, just, just, you know, experiment with some things, try one thing that you think is going to bring you a bit of happiness in the midst of this pain and see if you can access a little seed of happiness, even in the midst of this pain. And, uh, and when they see that that can happen, it's like, it starts changing the dynamics of what they're facing and it doesn't look so scary anymore. Yeah, personally, I feel like I'm a kind the kind of person who really loves change. I, I mean, mm. I love moving. I love mm. new environments. I love travel. I love, you know, yeah. I just, I think I do. But at the same time, there are some things that haven't changed for me for decades. And I'm very afraid of those big changes. Um, mm. Like my weight is one of them. My My physical fitness or health or whatever is one of them, as an example. So... There's something to be taken from this um, discussion that we're having for me, which is that fear that uh, maybe I'm not capable of navigating this change in a way that will be successful for me. And maybe learning that I'm not capable of navigating this change is going to devastate me inside and make me kind of useless for everything else. You know, maybe it's just an awareness I don't want to have. You're not capable of achieving this, Janelle, or you're not capable of of changing this for yourself. Um, and maybe that's a, a way that people are prevented from making changes as well. They just don't believe mm-hmm. that they can. So mm-hmm. I think that's why life experiences just dish you up what you need. You know, not always pleasant, but sometimes it, you need such a push 
such a push mm-hmm. to get out of your own way. Mm-hmm. For example, like four years ago when the pandemic hit and I was very comfortable in a what I thought was my career, you know, working for an airline and I was, mm-hmm. you know, creating a pension. And I thought I was, you know, everything was great. I was I was set. And the pandemic upset all that. All of a sudden, I don't have a, quote, job. And many people in the same boat as me working for that airline were completely devastated, devastated by that. What Mm. do I do now? And, Mm. you know, friends and coworkers my age in their, you know, late 40s or early 50s, like, what? how do I start over now? What am I going to do? And so... For some, depending on how you approach that, I suppose, it's a change that was terrible. And then for me, for example, it was a change that was beautiful. I just I just mm. welcomed that change, not because I didn't like my job, but just because I was like, hey, what's going to happen next? Mm-hmm. What's going to happen next? But you embrace you embrace the change, and many times people don't. That that may be you said. You know, I I like change. So your attitude towards it was to embrace it, and and in doing that, you found the experience was that your life was enriched, opened up in in so many different dimensions. Your life got bigger, not smaller. That's what people need to realize when they're facing change. That the change is there for a reason. It's pushing you towards change for a reason. And almost always that reason is for your good, not to devastate you. It's to expand you. Right. And then when you, when you get stretched and you start making some changes, you realize, whoa, I, this is, this opens up a whole area that I had never even knew existed. And mm-hmm. it is actually much better than what I experienced before, which is exactly the thing I was saying earlier, you know, free divorce. Divorce in the middle of that aftermath. It was just, it, it really expanded my life. Did it have to be? It didn't necessarily have to be, but I sh- certainly needed to expand my life. You know, I would have dried up and died if I had stayed the same person that I was in my 30s. So uh, sometimes you could even argue that your purpose is nudging and those changes are the way that direct you closer to your purpose. Because mm-hmm. You know, maybe if you hadn't experienced that sort of emotional upset, that sort of what, this is the end of the world, you Mm. wouldn't have then been raw and open and, you know, enough to be like, like anything's better than this end Mm. of my (laughs) existence here, right? And then you're willing Mm. to try things that you wouldn't try otherwise when you're comfortable. There's an interesting verse in the Bible in the story of Joe. Here's a guy who went through some really tough times you know he he was uh, he was a pretty rich guy and he went through some pretty tough times and lost everything there's a really interesting verse where god is talking to him and he says he says this so ron is referring to a scripture a, a passage from the bible he's talking about the book of job chapter 36 verse 15 where it's quoted he delivers the afflicted by their affliction and opens their ear by adversity So paraphrase, this would mean that adversity and suffering are a means of deliverance, sanctification, and even healing for those who experience it. More recently and less biblically, we often hear the phrase, why is this happening for you? Job is finally asking, "Uh, something's not going right here. What's going wrong? Mm. And then he was actually listening for the answer. 
And I think mm-hmm. that this is a lot of times it happens with us. We take things for granted, you know, yes. things are going along and they're not, they're not great, but they're okay. And yeah. so we just take things for granted and we're not asking questions. No. But when we get in a situation where we're oppressed, there's pressure on us. It doesn't feel good. And we're wanting to get out of this. That's when we say, what is going on? Why is this mm. happening to me? Mm-hmm. And if you are asking those questions and then you're actually listening for answers, the answers that come are often surprising and many times take you in a direction that you did not expect. And Mm. that opens up doors of opportunity and increase and abundance that you didn't even know was there. If you're just sitting there waiting for something to happen, you don't realize those doors are there. Yeah, I love this because it takes away the the fear because if you say okay well if i trust if i just decide to trust that yeah this situation that i'm in right now really sucks but something great is in store i think people think oh i'm not going to be like positive mindset positive mentality that's overplayed but i'm not talking about positive mindset i'm not talking about a forced narrative that you just i'm going to talk myself into this i'm just saying like resting, sitting back and just breathing and saying, you know what, I have no choice but to trust that Mm. the path that's coming, that's unfolding before me, which looks very scary and not what I would pick, is working on my behalf. It's here for me. It's serving me somehow. I think that's powerful. That's a great way to look at change. You know, when I was a kid, when I was 12, on our paper route, we had several large apartments. And so, those in those apartments where you you would come in one side of the building and they were just a corridor with apartments on each side. And so we'd walk the whole corridor, we would just drop the paper at their door. But I've seen that picture so many times in my mind when I'm thinking about uh what's unfolding in my life. And I really see the the movement in your life. If you just start moving, you're hitting these doors in those hallways. Some of them are locked. Some of them are open. Some of them are not locked, but they're not open. But you could go and twist the handle and go into that part. And I see those things as things that you just experiment with in your life. You go into that place, you that, that room contains certain things. And it could be a career. It could be a job. It could be a relationship. It could be a lot of different things. You go into that room and you just experience what's in that room. Say, is this for me or is it not for me? And if you go, ah, this is not for me. Okay, come back in the hall and keep on going down the hall because there's another door coming. There's another, this one might be open. You might've had to open that one, but this one might be open. You look in the room and go, this looks really interesting. And you go in there and experiment and, and play with the things that are in there and say, I'm going to stay here for a while. Or you say, yeah, this is fun, but I'm going to move on to something else. And the whole time, you're sort of progressing in your life, but what you're experiencing along the way is you're making choices and you're making decisions. You can't be sitting at the end of the hallway and saying, I see a lot of doors, but I have no idea what they're about. You got to go find out. So it's exploring. And, and I think many times the experiments that I recommend that people do, and so certainly ex- experiments I do in my own life are explorations. They're just exploring. Mm-hmm. I don't know what Mm -hmm. the outcome is going to be. And I'm not going into the room saying, well, I'm here for the rest of my days. No, I'm just going to check it out. I'm going to see what's happening there. I love that in your innocence, you don't see, 
uh, a different connotation to your analogy that I was seeing the whole time. I'm going to explore what's in this room. I'm going to explore what's in that room. I just see a seedy hallway with some doors and a lot of exploring. And my mind goes to a dark place. It's a dark place. Uh, well, see, in, in my mind, those halls were always waxed. You could see yourself in the floor. You know, so it was a very <laughs> pleasant looking thing. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, it's not a dark, seedy hallway for me. <laughs> it's all about perspective, baby. <laughs> Ron Thiessen is the change evolutionist and a practicing psychologist and educator. To apply as a guest on the podcast, please visit thechangeevolutionist.com forward slash podcast guest.